Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. I'm Jason Pack head of the NATO and Global Enduring Disorder Project. And I'm Alex Hall Hall, diplomat non grata. And this is Disorder. A podcast where we examine a pressing global issue like climate change, tax havens, or neopopulism, discussing how these issues are all symptoms of the coordination failures that undergird our era of global enduring disorder. And after we've diagnosed the mess that we find ourselves in, we try to finish by proposing solutions to restore effective global governance that could ultimately help us find a semblance of order. We're going to be talking about the psychological underpinnings of this disorder. And as a former diplomat, I can tell you that diplomacy is very psychological. You may think it's about texts and treaties and negotiating deals, but ultimately it comes down to the personal relationships you can build with the people who you see as your allies and your ability to convince the people who you see as obstacles. And you have to be able to understand what motivates them, what they care about, what their strong points are, what their vulnerabilities are. But it seems to me like in the last decade or so, our democratic leaders have lost the ability to outfox the autocrats. So this week, let's start with what makes a good negotiator and what makes a clever statesman. Fortunately, we have the pleasure to get some words of wisdom from one of the very best. Alex, you know, I've dealt with a fair few diplomats in my day, although not as many as you have. Luckily for you. <laughs> and very few of them tell me, you know, Jason, I was really working on my fencing this morning <laughs> to help me get ready for this meeting. When I'm at the Backgammon World Championships in Monte Carlo, I don't run into that many State Department types. And I think that's a big mistake because in the 18th century and before, every king or vizier or statesman would understand that chess, poker, and fencing, and even team sports like rugby were seen as the appropriate preparation for governing and diplomacy. And it might be very passe to say that the 
Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton, but there might be a grain of truth in that, and that people took seriously the idea of understanding game theory and of preparing to do ruling and policymaking from all of the human and psychological and game playing elements. I wonder if we might have lost that as Western policymaking, at least, has become more and more bureaucratized and, and institutionalized. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not all into this American preference for electing star quarterbacks to be senators. There might be a mistake with that. But I do think that people who are otherwise professional diplomats or career politicians could read a book about game theory or have fun with poker with their friends and then learn a little bit better on how to shoot the angles. And when they're in that negotiation with their Russian counterparts, how do you play the woman? How do you play the man a little bit more? I mean, I can tell you that as a diplomat, nothing in my training was about game theory or about learning to apply the skills from chess or poker you or backgammon. You didn't parry and <laughs> riparte and engage. <laughs> well, I learned a lot about how to draft effectively. In the British system, you have career diplomats. And I think there is a distinction between the bureaucracy, which you do still need to explain the parameters of a problem, to set out what the issues are and what the options are. And I think it's the skill of the politician or the negotiator then to think, okay, so this is our objective. These are the challenges. Now it's up to me as the negotiator to figure out how to play this hand. So maybe you could distinguish it like that, that the bureaucracy is there to deal the cards or explain the rules of the game. But it's the lead negotiator who has to play this game that you're talking about. Correct. Do all the institutional preparation, but let the man in the spot play the cards as he sees fit with a sense of the risks and rewards. And and things are going to go wrong. I understand that this idea can have downsides. We're not going to nail it every time. Okay. So that's actually just being willing to sort of take more bold gambits every so often. I definitely think diplomats tend to be cautious. We're absolutely terrified about causing offence. And certainly, as head of human rights, it used to drive me nuts when embassies around the world would say, oh, but we mustn't criticise X or Y leader or country in public. And actually, sometimes that's exactly what we should have done. Of course. Criticizing the Saudis in a closed-door meeting is useless. doesn't cause them to release the activists. Exactly. And much of how we solve larger collective action challenges facing the world can't be through force. I mean, just think about it. What, is the democratic world going to invade the rest of the countries to force them to curb carbon emissions? Are we going to conquer Russia to force them to tax the oligarchs' wealth? No, it's not possible. We need to build coalitions. We need to cajole. We need to incentivize. Isn't that what diplomacy is? And I see this as requiring psychological skill, but also a bit of gamesmanship. It's a high stakes game. And this type of negotiating prowess is needed now more than ever. If we're going to move beyond the current cycle of violence in the Middle East, we're going to need to use psychological negotiating skills to persuade our Arab Gulf allies to take on a larger regional role while also convincing the Israelis to just trust their allies to help them govern post-war Gaza. 
And over the past few weeks, as we've been discussing this conflict, the Good Friday Agreement has come up time and again as an example of when two opposing sides have succeeded in coming together to find peace. The circumstances aren't exactly the same, but there are some lessons that can be applied. And so we're so excited to be speaking today to Jonathan Powell. For me, he was incredibly famous as former British Special Envoy to Libya in 2014 and 2015 under David Cameron. For everyone else on planet Earth, Jonathan is known for serving as Chief of Staff under Tony Blair from 1997 to 2007. In that role, he oversaw a goodly number of key negotiations, including in Colombia, but also those in Northern Ireland that led to the Good Friday Agreement. So Alex and I started by hearing about the biggest lessons he learned from negotiating such an important treaty and what it might reveal about diplomatic psychology writ large. I think the first thing I think is that you do have to talk to your enemies. If you actually want to stop an armed conflict, it's no good saying you're not going to talk to the people with weapons because they're very unlikely to make peace if you don't talk to them. If you can defeat them militarily, fine. But if they have political support, you're probably going to have to negotiate with them at some stage. So you find yourself negotiating with people you really don't like. When I first met Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness in 1997, I refused to shake hands with them. My father had been shot by the IRA. My brother Charles had been on their death list for eight years. I didn't feel very warm and cuddly about them. And yet, a few weeks later, I got a call from Martin McGuinness, and he said, would I come and visit him in Derry, incognito, not tell the securocrats, the police and the army. And I asked Tony Blair, and he said, yeah, sure, you're expendable. I got on a plane, flew to Belfast, took a taxi to uh, Derry, stood on a street corner feeling like a sort of very, very minor Le Carre character and was pushed into the back of a cab by two guys with shaved heads, driven around for about an hour until I was completely lost. And they dropped me outside a, a modern building on the edge of an estate. And I knocked on the door and Martin McGuinness came to the door on crutches. I spent three hours in that house with him. The lady of the house had gone away, left sandwiches, left the fire on. We made no progress in the negotiation, but I learned one important thing. And I think that was perhaps the most important thing I learned, which is you have to build trust in these circumstances. If you really want to end an armed conflict in a negotiation, the people you're talking to need to trust you. And that means you need to go onto their turf. You can't expect them to come to Number 10 Downing Street all the time or to come to a castle in Belfast. You have to share risks with them. And if you start sharing risks, over time you can build trust. It allows you to make that bridge that eventually allows you to succeed. What do you think was different about the kind of leaders that you were working for that allowed that process to begin? Successful negotiations require leaders on both sides who are prepared to take risks. You know, if you think about South Africa, if you hadn't had someone like Nelson Mandela willing to put the past behind him, willing to take real risks with his own side, and if you hadn't had F.W. de Klerk also willing to take risks with the right wing of the Africana movement, you wouldn't have had peace. And in Northern Ireland, we had leaders of the political parties, and they actually were risking their lives, not just their careers, to make peace. They had to move their movement, some of whom didn't want to move in these circumstances. So I think that's a key factor. If you have people who will take risk, then you have a chance of making success. In fact, Tony Blair says in his, um, his autobiography that I told him that he'd made peace because he had a messiah complex. It wasn't exactly that. It was Mo Molum, who you may remember, who had a very colourful turn of language. And she said that Tony thought he was effing Jesus, which is not quite the same as a messiah complex. So the difference was people were prepared to take risks and with a great deal of self-belief that it could be done and they could do it. But in terms of taking risks and building that trust, how much had to take place in secret first? I mean, if presumably 
a lot of this took place without any publicity. So they'd already got to a stage where there was a certain amount of trust before news of the negotiations leaked or the talks leaked. How much do you need to have secrecy? I think secrecy, particularly in these kind of negotiations, is fundamental. People won't make concessions in public. They don't want their own side to see them looking weak and giving in on things. You know, when I was negotiating with Jerry Adams, we often negotiated in a monastery in West Belfast. And he had a very small team with him, four of his closest people, plus Martin McGuinness. And even there, if he wanted to make a concession, he asked me to come and walk around the courtyard of the monastery with him so there was no one else there. And then he'd make a suggestion, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that. So there's an inverse proportion between the number of people in the room and the flexibility people are prepared to show. You, know, you don't get flexibility in great big conference rooms. You get it in coffee breaks and in small sessions like that. It is essential that negotiations, when they're on sensitive issues, when you're expecting people to make concessions, are in private. Because people will make concessions, but only if they know they're going to get a concession from the other side. So in my view, it is essential to have secrecy for the first stages of the negotiations. What was the most dangerous moment, do you think? Was there a moment when you really thought it might fall apart? There were quite a lot of moments when it looked like it was going to uh, collapse. I pointed myself, I'm not quite sure why, the official optimist the whole way through, believing it would be done and could be done. Tony lost faith sometimes. I remember one particular incident when he did a town hall with young Republicans and young unionists in number 10, a television thing. And I remember coming out the door and running into me and saying, we might as well give up, Jonathan. The next generation's worse than the last. And yeah, you do have moments like that in a negotiation. There's one I remember very well, which was we'd nearly got to an agreement. The IRA had agreed to decommission, but then at the last minute, Ian Paisley had demanded they wear sackcloth and ashes and that there'd be photographs of the weapons being uh, dismantled. And they refused, and the thing had collapsed. Pretty much everyone gave up at that stage. Even the Irish government gave up. And I decided we should keep on negotiating. So I flew over to Belfast. I was met by a Northern Ireland office official who told me to get out of the car and told me the biggest bank robbery in world history had happened the night before. And the dogs on the street knew it was the IRA who'd done it. And I was absolutely furious. Here I was out on a limb saying we should be going on with negotiations. And the IRA just cut it off behind me. And Adams and McGuinness would certainly have known about that. I felt like getting back on the plane, flying back to London. But I had a little theory, the bicycle theory, that once you've got a negotiation like that going, you've got to keep it moving. Because if you let it fall over, it's incredibly difficult to get it back up and running again. So you must keep going, however painful it is, personally, politically. So I got back in the car, we went to the monastery. And I couldn't even tell Adams and McGuinness I knew about this burglary because the police weren't going to announce it till lunchtime. So I was fuming by the time I flew back to London. But again, keeping going was the right thing to do. What does a negotiator need when it comes to the psychological human dimension? Is it an ability to listen, to understand other languages, cultures, to speak slowly? What would you say on that point? I'm not sure I meet any of those criteria. I speak very fast. I'm not very good at languages and so on. So I'm not sure there's like one cookie cutter model of a perfect negotiator. I do think the one you touched on, though, listening is really very important. Too often I hear people at negotiating tables who simply aren't listening. They may think they're listening. They may sit there quietly, but they're not actually listening. They're not listening for what do the people say this time they didn't say last time? How do they say it differently this time? Are they trying to give you a hint of where they can move? Uh, have they really not thought through what their interests are as opposed to their positions? So you have to listen and then see where the opportunity might be to change it. So you're sitting there, you're listening. And then you say, well, actually, so if we change the language like this, would that meet what you want? And sometimes you can get there. If you do it too slowly, they may move on. But if you can do it like that, 
that makes a difference. But you're also right, obviously, about the human element. Um, you have to be able to build trust with people. But there's a difference between personal rapport and becoming friends. I've seen people who negotiate with armed groups who become really sort of victims of sort of Stockholm syndrome. They become much too friendly with the people they're negotiating with and always favoring the underdog rather than the government. And quite often, it's the government that's in the right. One of my favorite anecdotes, it sounds flippant, but it does capture things that I think about negotiations quite well. We had a whole day of negotiating in the Sinn Féin office uh, with Adams and McGuinness, who were playing a big bad cop, good cop routine and beating me up and then being nice and beating me up and then being nice, trying to get concessions. Halfway through this 12 hours of negotiations, Adams leaned over the table and said to me, the thing I like about you, Jonathan, is you blush when you lie, which is indeed true. <laughs> and uh, Bill Jeffrey, who was sitting next to me, the Northern Ireland office official, leaned back across the table and said, unlike you, Jerry. And, and uh, actually, that summed the thing up. The <laughs> of negotiation is to actually be transparent. How important was third-party support in the Northern Ireland peace process or in peace negotiations generally? In Northern Ireland, the British government long resisted having any sort of international intervention in the negotiations. Eventually, in the early 90s, they overcame that and invited Senator George Mitchell, the leader of the Senate in the US. And there was quite a lengthy journey before he became chair of the talks. And not everyone was uh, in favor of him and felt that an Irish-American could be neutral. But he demonstrated that he could. And he did a wonderful job as a third party. And what I've observed around the world is having a third party makes the solution much, much easier. If you've got someone who can, even basic things like, say, the meeting is going to be on Tuesday. Otherwise, you've got a whole negotiation about the meeting on Tuesday and what time is it going to be on Tuesday and who's going to. All those sort of things are just much better done with the mediator. And then when you get to the stage where someone has to put forward difficult compromises, again, it comes much better from a third party than somehow the two parties having to do it themselves. I do observe, however, that increasingly governments are reluctant to have Certainly a government or a UN as third party. There's almost no role now for the UN as a third party, except in failed states. Even third governments like Norway don't do it very much. As far as you have anyone, it's NGOs and individuals. But actually, I think where we're heading to is what I would describe as virtual mediation, where you have advisors on the two sides who can talk to each other. So they can't actually sort of sit in the room and chair the meeting, but they can make suggestions. Why don't we meet on Wednesday? Uh, what if we actually made this compromise on transitional justice? I think we may be heading towards something more like that. Those remarks have really problematized how difficult it is even to set the conditions for a genuine talk, let alone to have a talk, let alone to implement the talk. And this is something that I really experienced in my Libya work, which is that if you sat one official in this place, the ambassador would say, no, 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 that's not appropriate because he has to be seated in a more prominent place than the central bank governor. How do you deal with this macho slash just human desire to win on these petty things and miss the big picture? Well, it is a weakness. And therefore, as all weaknesses can be exploited to try and actually make a solution easier. It does require having a mediator or facilitator with a fairly low ego in those circumstances. When disaster looms is usually when the mediator themselves has either a big ego or an agenda of their own and turn up, and that can make things very complicated. Uh, it can work sometimes. If you think about Richard Holbrook and the negotiations on uh, Bosnia, you know, he was not someone who um, avoided publicity or avoided saying difficult things to people. He was a bully. But you can have uh, that sort of strong character mediating, and that can get people off their high horses, get them to not worry about where they're sitting and things like that. 
Or you can have someone very passive like George Mitchell, both when he was doing the Northern Ireland negotiations and when he was doing the Middle East negotiations. So there are different approaches to this to try and deal with that sort of, as you say, that macho approach to negotiations where they waste their time on um, trying to face people down rather than actually thinking about the substance and thinking about their interests. Maybe the West doesn't have a coherent strategy these days of how to negotiate holistically because we see things in siloed portfolios, you know, like denuclearization is a silo and then climate change and carbon emissions are another silo. What do you think of this? Is there a failure to plan and identify cross-sectoral compromises with people like China that might be hindering our ability to negotiate? I'm not really totally persuaded by that. I think that it is true you have to have trade-offs because if you get stuck in a zero-sum game, so if you're talking about territory, there's only one thing that can happen. You can either have the territory or not have the territory. So you need to make it bigger than that. So you're absolutely right about that cross-negotiation. I'm not sure any worse at that than we were during the Cold War or after the Cold War. And I'm not sure actually that someone like Putin is a great strategist either. I think he's actually a tactician. He's a judo player who tries to use counterforce both in, 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 in use of violence and also in negotiation. So I don't know that we're worse at that than, than we were. What really bothers me, and this is true, we have a capacity to turn up at negotiations without doing any preparation. You know, if you went into a military campaign or you went into a political campaign without a strategy and doing some preparation, you wouldn't get very far. I do not understand why people don't learn that you have to repair, you have to think things through. If you do that, you can succeed. If you don't, you're going to fail. And this is a belief that a metropolitan elite would have. You and I believe in expertise and that you can study an issue and you can have certain insights. But a lot of people from other political backgrounds say, no, expertise, I don't want to have anyone who's prepared. Pick a name out of the phone book and have them run the negotiations. How do we stand down the person who makes that argument? Brexit is the case in point for that. If you sack all the people who actually know about Europe, who've had experience of negotiating, and then try and do it with a completely clean team who've got no experience of it at all, and you give it to people like David Frost, who really haven't got a clue how to negotiate, then you are bound to fail, and it's going to happen. And yes, you do have to have experts. Now, you also have to be able to get Beyond just the expertise, if you're doing a, a really complex negotiation, then you also need a political leader who sees things strategically and above the detail. But if you do that without the experts who can say, well, if you do that, this is what's going to happen. There's something I call the Dennis Ross syndrome in negotiations, where you can know something so well, have been doing it for so long, you can see all the problems in it. So Dennis, who's a fantastic guy, and I first met when he started doing the Middle East negotiations, he, completely brilliant, but he's been doing it ever since. And so he knows every reason why a Middle East peace process can never succeed, every effort that's been tried and all the counters. And you can get to be too expert. Then you need someone. And again, I hate to praise Donald Trump, and this is pretty much the only thing I'd praise him on in North Korea. He certainly had no understanding of North Korea, no understanding. He had to be briefed in pictures. <laughs> Nonetheless, he had the strategic sense. Patience was not going to work. And he needed to actually get beyond that. And he did something that both Obama didn't do and the current administration haven't done. So sometimes you need to have the, those political big picture ideas as well as the experts, but you have to have both. Coming up on the Disorder Podcast, how can the West better understand the psychology of the enemies of global order? Hola. 
Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. People like to think that all peace processes are the same. You know, you have two warring sides, and the key thing is to get one side to compromise and the other side to compromise, and they give up some land and the others give up this. But looking at Northern Ireland, you realize that actually all these conflicts are completely different. Northern Ireland was not a question of territorial compromise, but then you can extrapolate some things because in Northern Ireland, the symbolic architecture of the conflict was so critical. So the Ulster Unionists really cared that the police were going to be a royal police, that they were going to have the crown on their uniforms, and they didn't care if they were reformed in this way or that way, so long as they were called royal and they had the crown. And if you think about the Israel-Palestine, there's a symbolic component for Palestinians. They need to have a homeland. What is it going to be constituted as or structured as? That's like a different question than that they feel that their grievances were acknowledged and the symbolic component was dealt with. So I really agree, Jason, about that symbolic element. But I wouldn't say it's the homeland issue, which is the symbolic element, because that's a real tangible. The Palestinians need land of their own to live. For me, the symbolic component for the Palestinians is the right to return. In practice, I don't think everyone thinks Palestinian refugees around the region are actually going to return, but it needs to be there somewhere as a theoretical notional right. That's the symbolic issue for me, I think. That is an important symbolic issue. And you're right. It's a symbolic issue that needs to be massaged. Like, how do you present the Royal Ulster Constabulary in a way that both sides can accept? So that's exactly what needs to be done with the right of return. And another thing that strikes me by looking at Northern Ireland, Alex, in preparing for this episode, I reread again Jonathan's magisterial work, Great Hatred, Little Room, Making Peace in Northern Ireland. And he says that not only he, but Tony Blair himself and Mo Maulam would frequently try to conceive the Unionists as the Israelis and the Republicans as the Palestinians, and that the British were playing the role of the Americans and trying to get the two sides together while having various cards in their hands in the forms of subsidies and security guarantees, and that those are the analogies between the Middle East and Northern Ireland. But of course, the parallels between the two processes might be eerily similar in some points, but then they completely fall apart in others because Israel-Palestine is a place where neither America nor the international community has sovereignty, whereas Northern Ireland was an area where the British government themselves had a police force and they had sovereignty. And it really points out the extent to which the leverage that we have today, Alex, over the various sides in the Middle East is so limited. What can America do to get the Israelis to not bomb more Gazan apartment buildings? It's a completely different situation than looking at what leverage the British had over the Ulster Unionists. Yeah, so this is the difficulty, Jason. I mean, there are 
some similarities between Northern Ireland and Israel-Palestine, but there are also so many differences. And for me, the biggest one is the absence of a really strong peace camp on both sides and then supportive actors on both sides. Whereas actually in Israel-Gaza, you have malign actors who are actively trying to fuel this conflict for their own malign ends. Of course, countries like Iran and Russia, who don't actually want this to end. And then also, Jason, as you yourself have said, the other problem with this Israel-Gaza conflict is that everybody on the planet has an opinion about it. And so everybody has wants to have a slice of the pie. There's Everybody's reacting to it. And then we've got this climate of disinformation. So the context for resolving this is so much harder than the Northern Ireland one, and that was difficult enough. And it's really essential to keep these kind of talks secret, to be able to build up that trust first and confidence. I mean, could you imagine if it had leaked that Jonathan Powell was going to have secret talks with Martin McGuinness? I mean, it would have just killed the negotiations immediately. There would have been an uproar in the press. Family members of the victims of IRA atrocities would have been up in arms. There would have been questions in the House of Commons. So the fact that he was able to do it privately and quietly was a huge factor in the success of the negotiations. And another one of Jonathan's points where we see how difficult things are today relative to his day is the lack of neutral, trusted outside parties. Because if you don't have those neutral, trusted outside parties, people argue about what color is the sky and who sits in what chair. And you need those outside parties to call out the spoilers. It used to be that for the non-socialist world, the U.S. could play that role. But increasingly, we can't, as from issues from UAE, Qatar, to even these Iran-Saudi disputes, America isn't seen as neutral, or bizarrely, we might not even have enough clout left. So who do we have left? I mean, I think about, you know, NATO is trusted, but what do you know? They don't do negotiations. It's just a defense institution. The UN is not even a trusted interlocutor. They're not a relevant institution anymore for mediating, for convening, for enforcing. And then there's the EU. The EU does do negotiations, but they don't have one position. And the EU can't speak with one voice on these issues. So Alex, you've been in the room. Who can mediate major conflicts today? I'm worried that it might only be the Chinese. Look, when absolutely I, not. Absolutely not. When I'm going to argue very but when I think about on this. When I think about the Russo-Ukraine war, I see a Chinese-mediated solution. And then, look, the most recent diplomatic mediation success is the Iran-Saudi dispute. And who did it? China. I don't want this to be the case. I'm just trying to call a spade a spade. E, I think any negotiator is only as effective as, yes, their own personal skills, but also the cards they have to play. So it's not that the UN possesses any brilliant, unique, above-it-all qualities. It's just that where there is an issue where one or other of the members of the UN Security Council has a different agenda, the UN will never be able to appoint a conflict resolution representative because they are reporting back to the UN Security Council and the UN Security Council is pushing them to do different things depending on the interest 
of the Russian or the Chinese or the American. But Alex. I, I want to, sorry, but I have to come back on this point that only <laughs> the Chinese could mediate the Russo-Ukraine oh, war. I think it's unfortunately the case. That would be the most catastrophic, strategic, devastating setback for loosely called the West. Disagree. Because Disagree. I absolutely don't believe the Chinese would mediate in any way that would be disinterested. No, and I, but we can't either. The West uh, is a party to this war. The NATO countries are essentially involved. We're not neutral and they're not neutral. It may be a US-China mediation, but the Chinese are going to be involved. And I don't want this any more than you do. Of course, I don't want that. I want the West to be mediating this deal. But I'm living in the real world of the global enduring disorder. I think the Chinese are the only ones with the clout and the neutrality to be at that table. All right, Jason, I see your point. I don't think China is neutral, but they may need to be at the table to help facilitate a negotiated solution. And unfortunately, the one time I can actually see China and the US overcoming their differences to work together, maybe in terms of the nuclear threat from Russia, that does seem to be one area of agreement between them. And that'll be a good thing. So it turns out to understand how the Chinese might mediate, you need to get their psychology. And who better to do that with than Ken DeClava? He served as the regional medical officer and psychiatrist with the U.S. State Department from 2002 to 2016. But what that really means is he was in Moscow doing profiles of Putin and key GRU and SVR leaders. So Ken DeClava is the man to tell us about how this all works. Ken's years of insight and training as a professional psychologist means he's the perfect person to discuss whether the U.S. and other major powers still have the ability to be successful negotiators. I think the skill sets definitely exist among many nations, including the United States, to use these kind of tactics. I think we've had high points, certainly during World War II, during the Cold War, and you could argue partially during what's been known as the global war on terror. But I think in this era of nation-state competition, this kind of new era, new great game almost, if you will, in certain parts of the world, we have to dust off those skills once again, and they're more necessary than usual. Is it possible that dictators or autocrats or even neo-populists who get elected democratically like a Bolsonaro or a Trump are more skilled at subterfuge or bluffing, or are they just more likely to use it because of their personality makeup? Probably both. I will say what everyone knows about President Trump. President Trump prided himself on being unpredictable, and he came to politics from the world of a very dirty world of commercial real estate. Different politicians, including populists, based on their background, may bring different skill sets to negotiations that can... I think in some cases be helpful. For sure. I think President Trump was remarkably skillful in his diplomacy with North Korea in 2018, the Singapore summit. He achieved certain breakthroughs that had bedeviled many, many former presidents. And President Obama, when he briefed President Trump at the transition in 2016, told him North Korea is going to be your most challenging foreign policy issue, period. And I think President Trump's 
kind of boldness in willing to go to meet with Chairman Kim Jong-un kind of upset the apple cart because it wasn't what the traditionalists in the diplomatic and the intelligence community would have argued for or predicted. But President Trump, I think, intuited that strategic patience was not working, a doctrine of kind of waiting out the North Koreans, if you will, and that something had to change. And so I think he showed boldness there and boldness in going to the DMZ in June of 2019 and Hanoi in early 2019. But unfortunately, the negotiations faltered for other complex reasons, and President Trump lost the momentum after June of 2019, and that's where we are today. Neopopulists and autocrats can be bold in ordering, not just in disordering. So we can't make a blanket statement, which is that all autocrats are bad and disorder the world. Not at all. Napoleon, famously, he really generalized the idea of the rule of law throughout Central and Western Europe. What's different today about these autocrats, to my mind, is not the continuum between autocrats can be bold and get things done and democracy has more checks and balances. That's always been the case. We're in a situation where new kinds of neo-populist leaders might pursue decisions that harm the countries and power bases they lead. These kind of irrational decisions... And this gets at the psychological way in which the autocratic or neopopulist leader might be putting his own ego or desire to disorder ahead of the aims of his country or his objectives. How do you see that phenomenon? I see it as certain autocratic leaders who are, these can be also charismatic populist leaders who are disruptors versus those who are not disruptors. President Putin is a classic disruptor. He wants to tear apart the post-1991, and you could argue even the post-World War II world order. He won't see himself as a disruptor. He'll say, I just want to restore Russia's greatness and its place at the table as a great strategic power. And there's a grain of truth in that. It's a nuclear power. It's a huge country. It has lots of resources. So it has the potential to be a great strategic power. But that being said, the disruption can get in the way of the long-term strategic goals in many cases. It can delay them and hamper them. So I think that's where the personal political psychology of some of these disruptive leaders has to be studied carefully because it helps us understand their decision-making and their unusual rationality behind that decision-making. So do we sometimes miss the human element, and therefore, we're ending up in a less coordinated response, like Macron needs to secure France's place to have its own independent foreign policy. And by kind of not acknowledging that, the West is not united enough to be able to order a lot of our responses. You raise a couple of interesting questions there. One is in Europe, what we have in Europe is a kind of disorder, which is Who speaks for Europe and who leads Europe? Is it Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz? Is it President Macron of France? Is it Viktor Orban of Hungary? Is it Meloni of Italy? Is it uh, Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine? So that's playing out, I think, as well. I think if we don't pay attention to all the different signals, 
then we run the risk of having more disorder and more chaotic responses. We don't have a strategy yet for how this ends. We're not good in the United States at predicting end games. Look at what happened in Iraq or during the Arab Spring. We're not as good at end game prediction as we are with other areas of analysis. And that's the hardest part. People are tugging in many different directions, although a lot of right thinking and sane people and sane countries are on the same page about goals. We don't want a cyberspace where hackers can infiltrate anyone's computer. We don't want a situation where companies can emit as much dirty coal into the environment as possible. But yet, for a range of psychological and structural reasons, we can't agree on how to work together, how to regulate it. What do you think might have been different in the past from a systemic perspective that allowed greater order and greater working together than where we're at now? Sometimes the challenge is not just selling a policy and how to regulate an unregulated space, whether it's climate emission or the internet you mentioned in a time that's very dysregulated, and where leaders, both democratically elected and dictatorial and and autocratic leaders, have to then sell a policy to their populace, both to their elites and to their general populace. And that's a greater challenge. It requires yet another set of leadership skills to get people on board. And for example, in the United States right now, less than a third of people believe we should be giving ongoing weapons to the Ukraine. So President Biden has a very difficult job here. He has to sell his strategy vis-a-vis the Ukraine to a very divided American public. President Putin knows this. He knows these numbers. So this gets into the game theory aspect that they can wait. And in negotiations, like hostage negotiators, and they call it the wait, the ability to wait out and use time as your asset. And sometimes some of our Leaders in the West and in Europe don't have that long-term capacity to wait, whereas our adversaries have this ability in spades. Partisanship in America and in the UK leads to disordering inputs in our allies who, rather than working with the nation as a whole, put their eggs all in the basket of the one political party. Yes, it's a very scary development. And we see this in Asia, too, where the Chinese and President Xi have played this off expertly, both at the SCO conference and recently we really see this in his invitation and hosting at a state dinner of Philippines President Bongbong Marcos and the signing of new trade deals and agreements and trying to work around the complex issues surrounding the oil reserves and energy reserves in the South China Sea around Palawan and really signing new agreements that where you have an American ally, the Philippines, working at a state level where he was hosted at a state dinner by President Xi Jinping and along with their wives, which is very interesting. It shows that these autocrats have the ability to change course and try to enhance their soft power. 
Peng Liwan, the wife of Xi Jinping, has been a wonderful asset throughout his career in terms of her soft power. And he used her expertly in his diplomacy during his first two terms. So I think we see very clever other factors, human factors being used to enhance their diplomacy, but in a disordered world to divide, not in a big wedge way, but a little wedge here and there, progressively and systematically, many of our traditional alliances. And we're stuck often in a very bipolar, Cold War mindset thinking. And while that's sometimes useful, sometimes it's not. We have to be cautious. Alex, our guests really raised a lot of good points to chew on and things that our leaders really need to take home. What struck me is you need to take risks. You got to realize that doing nothing could be the greatest risk, even greater than having a few unproductive and dangerous meetings. So if you're Jonathan Powell, you might need to get into an unmarked car with Martin McGinnis, or you need to sit down with former jihadis, as he did in Libya, in order to make progress. And I'm not talking about appeasing opponents. I'm not talking about giving them things to meet with you. I'm talking about having the negotiations. And maybe we can expand this beyond the traditional way of looking at this. Not just let's negotiate with Iran or North Korea, but what about negotiations with massive polluters, negotiations with tax evaders? The most recent billionaire Bitcoin busts could be an interesting aside. The U.S. regulators really knew that a lot of this recent Bitcoin stuff was all bogus and all a Ponzi scheme and that the regulators were informed five, 10 years before it all broke. Madoff was just a Ponzi scheme. Letters arrived at the SEC, but they're like, oh, that's going to be a really difficult conversation. We're going to have to confront them. How is it going to look when we bring him in for these meetings? The point is you need to confront and you need to challenge in a delicate and nuanced way before it's too late. The biggest single issue in terms of having a successful negotiation or deal is when the other side can see that you really mean business and that you're not just going through the motions of a talk or a meeting or negotiations so that you can show your voters back home you're sort of trying to do something about it or so that you can go to the House of Commons and say, we met this person. And I will give a real life example of this. As head of our human rights department for two years in the British Foreign Office, I used to take part or lead negotiations with the Chinese and the Iranians and the Russians. We used to have annual human rights dialogues. And we weren't really serious about it. They knew even if they didn't agree to everything we were asking them, there weren't really going to be any serious consequences. And the reason our ministers were supporting these human rights dialogues, I mean, there was genuine revulsion about human rights abuses in China, Iran, and Russia, but subcontracting those discussions to mid-ranking diplomats allowed those politicians to say in public, of course, we take human rights seriously. We have a human rights dialogue with these countries, but it spared them from having to raise it in their own discussions with those countries' leaders. And if you're pursuing trade deals with China, 
You don't want to be bringing human rights up as part of those meetings. You have to mean it. And the same applies across all the board. Jonathan Powell was successful because the British leadership really wanted to make it happen. And the IRA had come to a stage where they knew they could not win their aims by military means. And there were leaders on the Northern Ireland side recognising that this sectarian conflict was not going anywhere. So all three sides really wanted to come to a deal. That's my perspective. Please follow The Disorder Show so you too can learn how to call your enemy's bluff. You can do that by just following on whatever platform, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts that you're listening to. Please also follow us on Twitter. We are at Disorder Show. And if you check out our episode notes, you can find out about some articles that our guests have written on this theme of psychology and diplomacy. And I don't want to end this show without saying thanks again to our absolutely brilliant producer, George McDonough, who has spent more time than you can possibly know helping me get to grips with podcasting. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. Gullhanger's managing director is Jack Davenport. And we also want to thank our former program managers, Zena Starbuck and Guy Fiennes. We hope you have an orderly week. 